Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 20th, bright and early in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States, late afternoon in the United Kingdom in London. It's a funny world we live in. Uh, yesterday, we did a, a, a show with Brandy Collins Dexter, uh, a media writer, cultural commentator in the United States. She has a really intriguing new book out called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Uh, it's a book which examines, in some parts at least, uh, Kanye West, the rapper, cultural commentator, the... Um, the review in the New York Times leads with the headline, Was Kanye Right? A civil rights advocate investigates. Uh, Kanye West, of course, is an intriguing figure. Um, the headlines uh, this week is not only has he launched his own private school, but he admits he hasn't even ever read a book, which is quite surprising for somebody who is in the business of starting schools. He compared reading a book to eating Brussels sprouts. I actually rather like Brussels sprouts, but that's another question. Um, what's interesting about all this is that books and freedom and media bias are all bound up with one another. One of the other headlines today is about Texas banning over 800 books last year. Uh, so this issue of media freedom, media bias, books, what one should, can, ought to read is something that we're going to be talking to today with my two guests, uh, Professor Keon West and uh, Karen Franklin. They're the author of an interesting book, Skewed, Decoding Media Bias. Uh, they're both in the business of decoding media bias, and they're both very good at skewering media. Uh, I'm going to begin uh, with Karen. Uh, Karen, uh, you're talking to me from London, um, northwest London, actually, as it happens. What do you make of this uh, news about 800 books being banned in Texas last year? And how does it fit in to your thesis in skewed decoding media bias? Well, let's just uh, look a little bit at the facts. Um, when we uh, recognize that 40% of those books that were were banned uh, featured uh, sort of main or prominent characters of color and another 41% of the banned titles are about LGBTQ plus themes or have lead or prominent LGBTQ characters then you begin to get a sense of the agenda of those books being banned and uh, clearly you know, there are uh, the agenda is uh, to undermine uh, educators, to sabotage students' freedom to read um, and to create quite divisive battles that distract from teaching and learning. And what this does is uh, sort of stoke up also others around the um, in the circle to feel that they can also justify um, the, the sort of reduction of information out there. So in the same report, people are attacking libraries 
the places uh, where there is a democratic selection of books. Yeah, The Guardian uh, has a piece today about US librarians facing unprecedented attacks amid uh, right-wing book bans. Uh, one would hope, at least, that um, Black Skinhead would also be one of those books that would be banned. Isn't it a mark of respect almost to ban a book does it actually make any difference does it do any good i mean in the age of the internet it's very hard to ban books i i think it's more the the intention and the message to people and the communication to those identities that are already marginalized that are already sort of fighting for some empathy and compassion and representation that authorities anywhere be they county or state are shutting down conversations about what it is to be human. And everybody loses out. It's not just about, oh, cool, some of us can jump on and you know, get this somehow um, via the internet. It's, it's about a, a bigger uh, leadership statement of you know, almost um, a, a sort of pathology of we're the dominant culture, we'll say, what is regulation, humanity, and who matters, and who can have a voice, and we will say who can't. Um, and you know this from Texas, uh, you know, and and this from a, a country really, which is shutting down the rights of people and the space to be seen as, um, you know, as a as a human being who doesn't have to fit the norm. Um, we, you know, of course, we're all looking, in the UK, we are all looking with our head in our hands at the conversations around natal slavery and the patrolling of women's bodies in a way that is unimaginable here. Well, let's and bring in the prof, uh, your co-author, yeah. Professor Keon West. He teaches at Goldsmith College. Uh, he's talking to us from southeast London, from... Hither Green, uh, which is part of Lewisham. I've never actually heard of Hither Green before. Uh, 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 Keon, um, what is your take on what is happening in the United States when it comes to all this book banning that uh, Karen talked about? Uh, is this um, a new wave? Is this something that's always been happening? It seems to me, as, some, as, as an English person living in America, that the culture wars have always been going on and they will always go on. There's nothing that different from, uh, from, 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 from what happened before. But what's your take? I would say it's true. There have always been culture wars. So there's always been a fight over what we can say, what we can read, the information that we can access. Though every wave of it is a new wave. Every wave of it is set out to accomplish something different and to create a different kind of culture. And culture does change. Some of that is organic. It happens naturally. But a lot of it is deliberate, and it's done by people who have a very specific idea of what culture should look like. I think that what this highlights for me is that some people get really sensitive about um, cancel culture, about banning certain things. But these are often the same people who are very much in favor of banning things um, and very much in favor of keeping things out that don't fit with their particular worldview. One thing I would highlight is that the actual banning, the actual silencing and cancel culture has always worked in this way, that there's always a stronger move to ban things and to cancel things from those in power, from those who are able to control the dominant narrative, as Karen says. 
Um, and the people who are, are less empowered, the people who don't have the power in society, they're not the people who are able to ban things. That's not normally how it works. Mm-hmm. I could give you an easy example, by the way, because one of the shocking things isn't just the, the things that we know are banned. By the time someone's on television or on the newspaper railing about how they've been cancelled and how they don't have free speech anymore, that person obviously has free speech. Um, the real denial of free speech are the, is the people you never hear from the people who simply never come across, or the topics that are simply never said. Um, The Queen recently passed away. You know, God save the Queen, God save the King. It's a big time of mourning for British people. But many British people have been totally shocked at the responses from some other parts of the Commonwealth, for example. And they have no idea why some people in Nigeria or some people in India or some people in other parts of the world might not be as happy with the monarchy as people in the UK are. And that's because... These British people have simply never read a single book about anything the British did that was bad outside of the UK. They just don't know about it. So they don't know about the pillaging. They don't know about the raping. They don't know about the murdering. They don't know. I mean, they have a vague idea about the enslavement, but they don't really know about it. And when they hear from the people whose families one or two generations ago were affected by genocides, for example, in Biafra, and they're still quite angry about the monarchy, they're shocked at this because it's something they've never come across. Um, I could give you another example of the kind of censorship that you don't think Well, no, no, I take your point. I mean, Kian, this book you have, uh, Skewed, Decoding Media Bias, um, How Bias Distorts Our View of Other People and How to Make It Stop. Are you yourselves part of this cultural war or are you some sort of meta text above it all? I mean, are you suggesting that... um, uh, are you arguing in some sort of scientific way against bias or are you making a political statement? I'd say in terms of arguing against bias, uh, the book starts with the presumption, and I think this is fair enough, the presumption that the person who's reading it does not wish to be a biased person. So if you're the kind of person who says, actually, I quite like my woman barefoot and pregnant and I quite like black people to not have the same rights as white people, and I'd rather just not have gays in society. If you're that kind of person, I'm not sure the book's going to do much for you. You might still want to read it because it still contains a lot of useful about how society has used the media to to further those ends. Um, And so I suppose you could read it in kind of a weird counterintuitive way. Um, But we're starting with the assumption that you're not that kind of person, that you actually don't want to be biased and don't think of yourself as biased. And what the book does is break down all the ways in which, and this is a frightening part, the secretive ways in which media continues to feed you very bad messages and in which you continue to absorb them. And the way the science comes in is that it really demonstrates, it proves it statistically and with a series of experiments This is what is happening. You are watching this kind of television. You're reading these kinds of newspaper stories. And as a result, this is what's happening to your brain. That's what's happening to your behavior. And that's what the book breaks down. Let's bring Karen back. Um, Karen, I I was looking at some newspaper headlines this morning. And they're all what you expect. So The Guardian, which is a progressive newspaper, has a headline about uh, more scandals out of Mar-a-Lago. Um, The Sun, which is a right-wing populist newspaper's headline, is about Kim Kardashian or Kylie Kardashian's new boyfriend. I mean, isn't that just the nature of things, that media is always going to be biased and it's unavoidable? And the real challenge is just getting people to understand that if you read one newspaper, you will get one kind of bias and another you'll get another or one television network, one bias, another television network, another kind of bias. 
Uh, I've got to disagree with you simply because when we uh, begin to look into the media and to, to dig deeper, there are biases that, that people don't have as a press agenda that they bring simply because of the way that dominant culture has educated us to think about gender, to think about uh, uh, sexual orientation. It's not necessarily a, a political standpoint. So, you know, just to talk uh, perhaps in in ways to recognize that you know we looked at those pictures there and immediately we're looking at one of the kardashians who uh, is is delivered in such a way that there's there's not we don't get any sense of a story about what's inside this woman's head yeah i mean for people who are listening it's uh, a picture of one of the kardashians uh mostly of her body so uh, as uh, yeah. as uh, i'm not going to get any cruder than that uh, so as uh, karen is suggesting it's a it's a highly sexualized image which is par for the course for the sun newspaper but it's actually par for the course for most of our media women repeatedly appear in flimsy clothing or undressed states um and my industry Except uh, the queen the queen is always dressed i wish we could get a naked picture of the queen that would be thrilling wouldn't it um, I, I'm not agreeing with you there, Andrew. Oh. Um, but, to, you know, to my point is that it's the we're trying to help people understand the repetition of seeing these imageries, imagery of women always hypersexualized, of men with selfhood in active doing and being situations that infiltrates the minds of the very young of a really small children who are getting a sense of self from their media, whether it's via the pictures uh, that their parents are looking at on the TV or in newspapers, or whether it's in their own media, in Disney cartoons, in um, children's books. And that doesn't go nowhere. That permeates a sense of entitlement uh, amongst boys and young men to see women in association to them. And always to if we're always viewing women with no selfhood, that is no agency, no active doing and being, then that has implications right through to legal settings where women are given did, uh, and uh, psychometric tests show this lesser moral agency in situations where their judgments need to be believed. But in fact, because people hold these biases and also women are educated to hold these biases against other women, that um, we are undermining someone's credibility uh, without us really even understanding that. And to help explain that, we brought in a forensic psychologist, Dr. Dominic Wilmot, who has spent quite a bit of time researching, forensically researching rape trials and the way in which without with psychometric testing of jurors beforehand he can predict who will find against the plaintiff um, even though it is an open and shut case and the, you know all of the legal agencies in it the police have all said we can we've got this we can nail this in britain i don't know about uk but our rape statistics are spectacularly low and so uh, and and obviously this is the tip of the iceberg because most women don't report for a start because they know they won't be believed but of those 
few who go forward with an entirely credible legal case, the biases of jurors can be now predicted as to who will, because they often do find against uh, the the, uh, the survivor. I'm not going to say victim. Uh, okay, because... well, let's bring, Karen, I, I take your point, uh, Karen. Let, let's bring in your co-author, um, the professor, Professor Keon uh, West. And I, I understand your point that culture is determining or media is, I don't know, uh, broadcasting or... or, or or uh, enforcing assumptions, one kind of power relation or another. What do you want to do about it, Keon? I mean, are you suggesting that there are fixes? M my point is that if, if all media reflects one kind of bias or another, how are we ever going to get beyond it? So I don't think it's fair to say all media reflects one kind of bias or another. That's true in much the same way that it's true that all governments reflect some kind of bias or another, but it's true in a way that's kind of trivial and not very useful or important. So it, you could say that, you know, the British government is biased, but the German government of 1939 to 45 was also biased, but these are obviously not the same things. And we can make changes that make material differences. I also think that the kind of questioning of, well, what are we going to do? It's always been biased. Again, that's not reflected by the way anybody actually behaves. So in Texas, they've banned 800 books. And whether you agree with those books or not, you acknowledge that that will make a difference. It will change the way the children of Texas think about the world. And that is why they banned the books. That's what they wanted to happen. Um, in every country that I've ever been to, in the country you're in now, in the country I'm in now, we have systems for determining who gets to watch which films. So whether it's an R-rated film or it's an adult film or whatever you want to call it, or a film for children, PG, PG-13, we have rating systems to determine who should watch what. And there are some things that we think nobody should watch. You cannot buy a copy of Mein Kampf in Germany. So every society acknowledges that making these changes will change how people think. And what we want to do is change it in a way that makes people behave better. So to give one really simple example, kind of based off what Karen was just talking about, um, there's a really interesting study, and I talk about it in more detail in the book, in which they split a group of men into two groups, and they give one group of men just a normal set of adverts, and they give another group of men highly sexualized adverts. Um, so the kind of images that you could see in that picture of, of one of the Kardashians, except even sexier than that. And they just, they didn't have to make these adverts, they're just highly sexualized adverts, and they showed the men the adverts. And then in what was supposed to be an unrelated study, they asked the men to interview a woman for a job. That's all they had to do. The men who saw the normal adverts asked much more normal questions. But after only about eight minutes of seeing the highly sexualized adverts, the men in the other condition asked questions like, oh, do you think you could wear a short skirt to work? Or are there such really inappropriate kind of waiting for the sexual harassment lawsuit um, kind of questions? And what that shows us is that, of course, media will make a difference. And if you want certain kinds of behavior, you have certain kinds of media. And if you want that behavior to stop, you take it away. And so we know that these adverts have these effects. If we stop them, they wouldn't have the effects anymore. The question so, uh, is, are you, yeah. uh, so, so, so uh, I take your point. So are you arguing that, for example, um, ads need to be uh, regulated so they're less, they're less sexualized, less sexist? I'm saying that ads are actually already regulated. In, in every country, in every developed country, ads are regulated. You can't just say anything in an advert. 
Um, so we all know that openly, aggressively genocidal adverts cannot be aired on television in the United States or the United Kingdom. They're just not regulated in that way now. And so the important part of what I'm saying is that we're not arguing about introducing legislation. The legislation exists. The regulation exists. Um, what we're arguing about is where do we as a society feel comfortable drawing the line? What kinds of things would we like to change now that we know about the effects that are being shown? So what would you like to see? What um, changes? Oh, wow. If you I mean, if I could snap my fingers and just if make... you could snap your yeah. finger and address yeah. these biases that you see in, in, in media yeah. and in your studies, what would you what yeah. would you do? Okay, so I, I think the Sir Lenny Henry Foundation in the United Kingdom recently did a review of, I can't remember exactly what, so don't quote me on this, go and read the review that um, the Sir Lenny Henry Foundation did, but they looked at all the ways in which, black, in which black people show up in the UK media, and they showed that if you're looking at a black person on the media in the UK, it's almost certain that you're looking at a story about poverty, or crime or music, and that's it. And that's ridiculous. Black people are not just poverty, crime, and music. But if you watch television, that's all you get. Um, you know, with the rare exception of people who are tuning in now, you don't get black professors, you don't get black business people, you don't get black lawyers. Now that has changed, and again, this can change. Societies can choose to change these things, but it's still not very good. And because it's not very good, that's the impression people get. And even people who think that they're very reasonable people have these really limited ideas because of television like this. Um, another thing I would change, I have children. Do you have children, Andrew? Yes. Have you read any children's books? Can you name a children's book? Uh, good Night Moon. Yep, that's a nice one. Um, any others? Well, they've grown up now. I can't remember. Uh, any okay. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Tintin. How about Tintin? Tintin is Tintin. really okay, racist. Okay, there's lots of Tintin. Tintin can be super racist, yeah. But yeah, remember Tintin yeah. in Africa? That was that, is, that even got yeah. a Hergé band, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I would Belgium say. Itself. Yeah, none of that. But the challenge I give to people is always: Can you name a single children's book in which there is a woman who has a job, and that's not the entire point of the book? So someone mentioned one to me the other day that was about a little girl who chose not to be a princess and decided to become a doctor, but that doesn't count because that's the whole point of a book. I mean, just a book in which there's a woman who happens to have a job. Like in Elephant Tantrum, there's a man who just happens to have a job. So he has a daughter, he buys her an elephant, and he's in his office worrying about the elephant. Or in um, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, Mummy's Taking Care of Sophie, Daddy Comes Home From Work. There is no book. I have never found this book. And if anyone can tweet me this book where there's a woman with a job and that's not the whole point of a book. I've never seen it. And we've had to raise children now, I don't know, for the past hundred years, however long, to, without this book. And is it any wonder then that so we don't your message to the So yeah. is your message to authors or readers or the publishing industry? I mean, what's your point? My message I... is to everyone. I'd say to the authors, to the, to the people who regulate these things, I'd say, take a look at what you have. You have legislation that permits certain kinds of things and, and bans other kinds of things. Um, and I say people are already doing this. Texas doesn't want you to read about people of color or gay people or anything like that. Right. Ask yourselves, what do you want to be able to be read in your states, in your countries? And to readers, what I would say is don't assume these things are neutral. We assume children's books are just nice stories. But when you read children's books and you've read a hundred of them to your children, and none of them contain black men who are fathers or women of any kind who have jobs, you are teaching your children, black men don't take care of children and women do not work. 
And these are bad things to teach. Even if you never say it explicitly, it's what you're doing. And so as a, as a reader, you have to be very careful and you have to be deliberate about what you consume. That's what we're saying. Let's bring Karen back in. Now, Karen, we had a show um, last month with the American author, Jessica Nordell. She has a new book out entitled The End of Bias, The Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias. Do you believe that we can get beyond bias? Is there an end to bias? I, I do. And I, I wanted to join in there when Keon was talking, because uh, a lot of the lectures that I do are to I work in the fashion industry. So I'm working with potential advertisers, marketers, marketeers, designers who create a lot of imagery from their catwalk and helping them to understand that they bring this kind of dominant culture perspective about who should look a certain way, what bodies are relevant, um, you know, the body language in advertising. Um, what I'm, you know, what I'm coming up against every time is that most young creatives haven't considered this. They, it's just the way it is. It's just the norm. So when I'm introducing the idea of male gaze and I'm showing all of the pictures that have uh, ha had huge credibility, say, in fashion, and we start to dismantle what it where's the personhood of this woman we can see the man's story he's fully dressed what's the woman doing she's just lying back with her legs open i kid you not uh you know well uh, we see that you all you have to do is open the newspapers in the morning the sun in particular um you know and and this so when you say well what can we do about this actually engaging yeah. education not just waiting until we're talking about degree level but we're talking about uh children early on who are massive consumers of the media young children consume three or four hours of screen time uh, quite easily and none of this is being decoded by their parents who don't necessarily have the vocabulary if we talk about race for instance the studies show uh, and um, empirical conversations show that white people are very uncomfortable talking about whiteness and never more so when there are racist uh, incidents in the media. They go even quieter. They don't want to admit to race bias. They don't want, they, a lot of white people would prefer to promote a sort of mythical color blindness to their children to say, oh, well, in this house, we see everyone as equal. End of story. Let's not talk about it. It's too uncomfortable. But you consider well, yourselves, um, or oh, uh, maybe not yourselves, because I don't want you speaking on behalf of Prof West, but Karen, are, are you part of this woke movement? Certainly, I don't know if you have that word in the UK. It's Yes, we do. It's a popular it's word in the US. Are, are you woke? Is this a woke ideology? I'm not. Uh, I'm not sort of labelling it something that is is quite cliched. I'm ex I'm exposing my biases. We both expose our biases in the book. The brain is a beautiful but flawed organ. It constantly presents shortcuts in the form of stereotypes, in the form of this has happened. You know, this has gone before, so I'm just going to rely on this. And because we're making so many judgments, and we want to make quick, fluid judgments. We we don't necessarily deconstruct. So I'm what I'm saying in 
in, in my kind of space as a creative educator is these things, we need to stop and think about these things because we are the teams who make up all of the, the journalism. Uh, I know, and I take your point, but some people might be watching and thinking, well, these people, she just admitted she's biased. She has an agenda. What makes well, you different from everyone else? Well, by admitting that we are all flawed human beings, I'm not setting myself up as being somehow so special that I haven't uh, um, taken on any biases throughout my 63 years on this planet. I've taken, I mean, here's a basic one. How many times do we say, oh, a newborn baby, boy or girl? And then once we know it's a Is that biased, if you ask that question? Yeah, we're looking. Well, to not, you shouldn't ask that question when someone has no, a baby. I'm not, and say, that, I'm not saying that, Andrew. I'm saying we then call upon uh, a context for how you deal with a boy. You're a big, fine fellow. I bet you're going to grow up into a big, strong boy. And we're, we're shaping tiny children by the way we then all begin to engage with that child. There are many, many parents now who wish to bring up not babies but babies, where the sex of that child is not um, known, but even by grandparents, so that there isn't the, the biased and gendered behavior. So even in studies, uh, both parents, mothers and fathers, prioritize the physical robust growth of their son, don't question appetites, yet uh, uh, tiny girls, are, you know, some uh, accounts show having their appetites restricted, are, you know, being encouraged to sit still and be quiet. And of course, we know the agenda for femininity is that you see yourself in association to men, you, you are encouraged to be a service provider, encouraged to suppress your own emotional needs because you are a nurturer. What if we just didn't put that on our children? What if we allowed children to be who they need to be? Wouldn't that be exciting? Let's bring the prof back in. Uh, Keon, um, we've done some shows on the role of technology in all this. Uh, we're in, on the West Coast, so of course, we're always talking tech out here. Did a show with one... Um, one writer, Bina Amanath, who works at uh, a big uh, in consultancy about whether AI can solve the problem of bias and diversity. Uh, she has a new book out called Trustworthy AI. She works with Deloitte. Um, and, and when you go to the Deloitte site, they have all these complicated uh, charts of how to address bias. Can tech help? Can we use AI to uncover often the unconscious biases of ourselves and of our media? I'm not a tech expert, um, but from what I've seen of tech, tech will simply do the things that you ask it to do. Um, it'll do what you ask it to do, whether that's conscious or unconscious. And so what we have, for example, um, for a long time, many cameras, um, including the digital cameras, didn't do a very good job of showing, for example, black skin, that it just would look awful or ugly or just not very well colored because the technology that was designed wasn't designed for people with darker skin, so it didn't work very well. Um, other people I know have written books about the idea that the seatbelt, for example, is designed for the average man and therefore doesn't work as well on the average woman. And these are little ways in which people don't necessarily think about the tech that they're making as being skewed in one way or another, but it is. And that's, it does whatever we tell it to do. And if what we tell it to do is biased, 
because we're biased, then what it does will be biased as well. Um, I'd also like to go back to that question that you asked Karen, and maybe I'll ruffle a few feathers, but um, feel Do free it. to come I at like me. To have I my guess. feathers ruffled. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, but um, you said that you know they have an agenda, we have an agenda, everybody has an agenda, let's just admit that we're biased. And again, I think that's true in some sense, but not in a very useful sense. So I think it's true that you know the anti-vaxxers, and this is where I'm going to ruffle feathers, that the anti-vaxxers and all the scientists who tell you actually vaccines work, just take the vaccines. Everybody has an agenda, but one of these agendas is, is supported by factual science. One of them is in accordance with the data that we have and is helpful. The other one is unhelpful and not in accordance with the data we have. Um, it's the same is true for the flat earthers and the people who say, no, it's, it's round. It's, it's an oblate spheroid. We know that. We can see it. The same is true for the, the, the creationists and the people who say, well, evolution just happened and we know it happened and this is why it's useful for medicine. And so it is true to some extent that both sides of these arguments always have an agenda. But I think reducing it to that doesn't tell us anything useful that actually what we need to do is look at where these agendas are coming from. And I'd say from the point of view of our book, that we do have an agenda. Um, and like I said, we start with the assumption that you don't want to be biased and that you don't think of yourself as biased. And I think that's true for most people. I think what most people then don't realize is the ways in which what we do trips us up. So if I spend you know, a significant amount of my time on Instagram, maybe I do, maybe I don't, and I'm looking at a lot of Kardashian-esque pictures, maybe I do, maybe I don't, um, then yeah. at the end of the day, I'm going to behave differently to the woman in my life. And if that's something I don't want to happen, if I don't want to then be on the hook for a sexual abuse lawsuit, I should probably change my Instagram feed. Or yeah, you if, probably you know, should read uh, Black Skinhead. Uh, probably do something like that. Which if is I've a very good book, by the way. I think like you both that, would enjoy the book. Um, yeah. Let's end, uh, guys, a very interesting conversation. Let's end with a cultural question. Uh, we yeah. did a show a couple of months ago with a Sikh writer, Simranjit uh, Singh. Um, interesting show about what Sikh religion, and he's not saying there's anything unique or special about it, but what it can help us, uh, what, what it can teach us, help teach us about disrupting bias and building empathy and seeking wisdom. He has a new book out, The Light We Give, How Seek Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Do you think one of the other fixes here is to be a bit more culturally open, to look at other traditions, the Sikh tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the atheist tradition, and try to escape the, the, the Western tradition that continues to rule the world essentially who would you like to go first shall i jump in you I, jump in karen i think you know what we what we do understand as a result of talking about bias is the more diverse your team is so that could be your your sets of references the people you work with your friendship group your big wider social group the more you're going to learn the more you will be presented with a, a wider representation of what it is to be human. Now, why wouldn't you want that? If you're in a creative team making a campaign, why would you just want a white male middle class perspective? Why wouldn't you want to broaden it out? There are so many examples of fashion houses making absolute faux pas, particularly around race, faith, 
uh, and ethnicity and massively damaging their credibility. But if we think of ourselves as human beings, curious and on a journey, wanting to be compassionate uh, and empathic, why wouldn't we want a broader range of, of ideas from people who have lived a different way and a different life? Kian, you want to end on, on this the, the, the seed question of whether we need to look outward to other traditions, cultures, religions that aren't as familiar? Yeah, I would say we 100% do need to do that. I'm shocked even thinking about it. I don't know the first thing about the Sikh religion. And let's be honest, I know very, very little about Islam or Buddhism, apart from the very few conversations I've had with my friends. So we tend to have a very limited scope when it comes to what we look at in the world and what we understand. But I would say that as much as I really love and adore the we have to be open minded, we have to have as many friends as possible. And I support that message. I also think we cannot allow that message to replace the message of be careful what you consume. It's like telling someone that you need to eat more vegetables, just eat more vegetables. And let's not worry about the arsenic that you're putting in your body every breakfast. That yes, the more vegetables is always going to be good. You're not justifying you, not eating Brussels sprouts, are you? You're I'm not, doing not a justifying not eating Brussels sprouts. I'm just saying that it's sometimes the let's do more of the good message is easy, but let's control the bad message. People get really quite cautious about that, but you have to do both. It doesn't make sense eating loads of Brussels sprouts if you're then going to chew down on 50 cigarettes every day. It's just not going to help you. So be careful about what you consume and open your mind. I'd say do both.